We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in your presence. We're so grateful, Lord, that as we have just sung in this song, that you are our Lord God Almighty, that worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we see this picture in Revelation chapter 21 in the Bible that shows all of the believers from all time who put their trust in You, all with white robes on, as far as the eye can see, standing before the throne of God. And on the throne of God is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. With the scars from the nail prints still in His hands, And Lord, that is the picture that we see today. And we worship You. Those scars in Your hands represent the sacrifice that You made for us. We deserve to die. But You took our sins upon Yourself. And You died in place of us so that we might have life. An everlasting life. We thank You, Father, that Your love is so great. Your Grace is so wide, your mercy is so deep, that no matter how far we get away from you, Lord, you are always chasing us and whispering in our ear one more time, I love you, come back to me. And Lord, there may be some here today who are saying, I I feel far from God. And that word from you, Lord, would be simply this, come home. Come home to Jesus. Come home to the church. Come home to that place where grace is all around you, where forgiveness is from the hand of God, where mercy is given to us freely. Come home. Lord, I want to lift up those who are standing today. Some are standing on behalf of themselves because of a a need in their lives. Others are standing, Lord, because they have a need for a loved one, a family member or a friend or someone they work with. But Father, for each of them, we pray this same prayer. We pray that the the healing power of Jesus would flow down upon them and touch them body, soul, and spirit. Fill their lives, Lord, with forgiveness and healing and purpose, and joy. Whatever their need is, Father, whether it be physical or emotional or relational or spiritual, fill them with your presence, Lord Jesus. Fill them with your presence. And Lord, now we would pray for Steve Reed as he brings to us the Word of God. Lord, this is a message from your heart. I I, I sensed it in my spirit during the first service. This is a message from you for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with Steve. He has done his part in preparation. And now, just like the little boy who brought the loaves and fishes to you, Lord, we ask that you would take this offering that he brings and that you would multiply it and use it to feed us abundantly uh, during this time. So, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we pray now that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to the word of God as it comes to us. For we ask all of these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. We're going to talk about shipwrecks this morning. 
In the 18th century, Europeans used the word Lisbon, Portugal, much like we would use the word Auschwitz today. There was an earthquake which destroyed the city and it occurred symbolically on All Souls Day. And there followed three tsunamis which drove ships over three miles inland from the coast. It kindled all the sacramental fires that were left on the church altars. It burned three quarters of the city. It killed half of the population. The Lisbon quake of 1755 took place in the middle of the Enlightenment period in history when philosophy and theology was at its height. And this natural disaster was the first one to ravage Europe. It shook the foundations of religion. Both words, Lisbon and Auschwitz, speak of horror, death, destruction, injustice, loss, pain, suffering, shipwrecks. They ask the question, where is God? Are we left to suffer alone? And both carry the collapse of the most basic trust in the presence of God. It begs the question, what connection does God have with our suffering? What connection does he have with evil? To philosophers and theologians of this period, the discussion of Lisbon centered on the abandonment of God. He had abandoned us. He had purposely loosed a destruction that had killed these people. And the discussion centered on the nature of evil and whether God was the author of what we call our shipwrecks. Now, the scriptures are full of shipwrecks. There's Isaac on the sacrificial altar. There's Job who loses everything. Jesus in Gethsemane and later on the cross. And the reference this morning is Paul. Paul was, had been uh, um, imprisoned by King Agrippa, and as a Roman citizen, he appealed to by Tiberius Caesar. And so they shipped him off to Rome. And he was on his way when a great shipwreck uh, stranded him on the island of Malta. It's here in Acts 27. He's assuring the sailors and prisoners and guards of their safety. Acts 27, 21 to 44. From now on, things are looking up. I can assure you that there will not be a single drowning among us. Last night, an angel stood at my side and said, Don't give up, Paul. You're going to stand before Caesar, and everyone sailing with you is going to make it. Some of the sailors tried to jump ship. Paul saw through their guise and told the centurion, If these sailors don't stay with the ship, we're all going down. Still far from shore, the ship hit a reef and then began to break up. The centurion gave an order for everyone who could swim to dive in and go for it. And for the rest of us, grab a plank. Everyone made it to shore safely. But in 1755, Europe was shipwrecked by the Lisbon earthquake, and they began to question the relationship between God and man and suffering. The question, the nature of evil, 
Why had God allowed this to happen? They, like the Jews, herded into cattle cars destined for Auschwitz. Like us, when we are shipwrecked by life, we don't have the luxury of an angel standing next to us like Paul did, saying, everything's going to be good. We have to come to our suffering on our own and struggle to shore, grabbing the nearest plank. Wet, exhausted, scarred, desperate, we paddle our way as best we can. We have all suffered these kinds of shipwrecks. Suffering, I hate to tell you this, but suffering is a part of life. Most of it is our own fault. Occasionally it occurs like an earthquake for something out of our control. But if you, if you Google most of the famous shipwrecks, they will list these five, and all but one of these are the result of human failure. Uh, the Mary Rose was the greatest sailing ship of the time of Henry VIII, and he was threatened by a Spanish invasion, and so he built this ship and they put 50 guns on it, and then he decided that wasn't enough, so he put another 20 on the decks. And, of course, it caught a, a wind broadside, and it tipped the whole boat over, and it sunk. 600 sailors went down in the River Thames. In 1622, the Atocha, a Spanish galleon laden with about what would be today about a billion dollars worth of gold and silver, was in a hurricane and sunk off the Florida Keys. In 1912, the Titanic while all of the other ships in the North Atlantic had shut off their engines because of the icebergs, the Titanic was sailing at full speed to set a speed record of crossing, ran into an iceberg, and sunk with 1,500 lives. In 1915, the British passenger ship Lusitania was sunk by a U-boat, a German port torpedo, put it down in minutes. And after they had uh, researched, uh, the, the wreck has been recently found, and they discovered that the United States, contrary to the um, neutrality treaty, had loaded the ship with armaments and explosives headed for the Allies. And so when the torpedo entered, that the ship went down with 1,200 lives in a matter of moments. And in 1941, the greatest battleship ever built, the Bismarck, Sailing alone was ambushed off the Brazilian coast by a number of British ships and sunk. So we have the catalog of shipwrecks. The Mary Rose, stupidity. The Titanic, pride. The Lusitania, deceit. The Bismarck, arrogance. Only the Atocha was without human cause. Like these ships, most of our shipwrecks are caused by ourselves, our own failures. And although there is grace and mercy in God and he will always save us spiritually, sometimes he hangs us out there to suffer from our own deceits or stupidity or pride or arrogance. Uh, when I was young, I thought that most everything that happened to me was a shipwreck. Hungry for approval and affection, every slight that I suffered was a shipwreck. 
Um, when I didn't make the seventh grade choir because, in the words of the music teacher, you sound like a dying toad with strep throat. That was a shipwreck. But looking back, these were just losses, losses that everyone suffers when they're young. I only can count one instance of my youth as a great shipwreck, and that involved a girl. She moved in across the street from us. She was skinny, had glasses, rusty mop of curly hair tucked under a red socks baseball cap. We were eight years old. And the first words I heard from her as she passed by my safety patrol post was, what are you looking at? She went to Guardian Angels Catholic School. I was a public school kid, so we didn't see each other most of the time. But there were the evenings after dinner. There were the weekends. There was summer. And we were drawn to each other. She was kind of runty and outspoken and not a physical beauty in a world where that's the measure of a girl. And me, I was awkward and shy and kind of a loner. She was cute, but no beauty. She never really developed and remained all kneecaps and elbows. She was a tomboy. She was at ease with climbing trees and dirt and more than dresses or perfume. And so none of the boys on the block liked her except me. I was the only Protestant kid on the block, and so even though she told me I was going to hell, we grew together, we traded baseball cards, we ran through the sprinkler, we learned Morse code so we could flash signals and messages at night. We played baseball in the vacant lot. We defended each other against Boris, the three-legged dog that stalked the neighborhood. And then suddenly, we were 13. The streetlights flickered on, the universal signal for kids to head for home, but no voices called us in. And so we started one final game, a flashlight tag. She grabbed my hand and pulled me into some cedars by Virgil's house. And a branch from one of the bushes was near poking out my eye. I silently weighed the alternative of blindness versus holding hands. The flesh won. I wouldn't have moved for anything. She smelled of powder and grape bubble gum and RC Coca-Cola, and I was sure she could hear my heart beating through my shirt. We sat there in the still of night, silent, sweaty, 13. Then finally, between labored breaths, toward the small patch of evergreen by my left knee, I whispered in an almost inaudible death row voice, Mary Catherine, I think I love you. <laughs> and, like all good romances, the sky exploded into a fireball of light. But it wasn't the splitting of stars or the recreation of Earth. It was the flashlight. Caught, Adam yelled. He assessed the situation. Geez, really caught. <laughs> what are you guys doing in there anyway? Nothing, she said. Didn't look like nothing to me, Adam announced to every house on the block. I let go of her hand. She pushed through the bushes and said, well, I guess that makes me it. For as much as we knew at 13 years old, we were in love.
And as it is even now between boys and girls, she was way beyond me in maturity. She forced a contract on me. There would be holding hands. There would be hugging. There might be an occasional kiss. But there was no hanky-panky. I didn't even know what hanky-panky was. And I didn't care. And in the words of Robert Frost, love was the li- at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. At times it seemed too much. I lived on air. Love bloomed for me in the pale green eyes of a skinny girl. And the end of summer came, and she went off to CYO camp, and I went off on a Boy Scout wilderness pack. And when I returned, I learned that there had been a canoeing accident, and she was gone. I was shipwrecked. I was stranded on a foreign shore. I was unconsolable. I spent a lot of time with my two grandmothers who pretty much raised me. And they talked to me a lot about God, and I didn't want to hear any of it. I wasn't ready to hear it. I hated God at that moment. He had abandoned me. Why in the world would he have taken this only person that loved me for who I really was and who I wasn't? If there was a God out there somewhere, then why in the world would he do something like this. I hated him. My memoir read, after months, settled on this. She said, all of life needs to be life. It's magic by itself, and it don't take no changing for me for it to be perfect. You understand, child, don't paddle upstream with life. More often than not, it takes you where it wants you to go. You've got to have peace about things you can't change. Let life be life. Let death be death. Let magic be magic. And if you never get your dream in life, it's all right, for the dreaming is enough. And God will always be there at the end. You've got to have peace about things you can't change. Let life be life. Let death be death. Let magic be magic. And if you never get your dream, it's all right. Because the dreaming is enough. And God will always be there at the end. Jesus said it this way. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in the way of life. Instruct them in the practices of all I have commanded you, and I will be with you as you do this, day after day, right up to the end of the age. He says to us, I am. I am with you always. Through times of triumph and beauty, in moments of suffering and pain, 
and the joy of life and laughter of friendship and love and the hidden dark night of depression and despair in loss, in abandonment, in death. I am with you. Well, I didn't want to hear anything about the purposes of God then. I just wanted her back. Or failing that, I wanted to be where she was, playing right field somewhere in a field of dreams. But now looking back and understanding God a little bit better and seeing more of his reflection, I understand that as crazy as it seems, it is in his will. All things from that dreadful summer till now, they are in his will. And my life took a turn and brought me, my wife and my children, my grandchildren, my church, the kids that I teach, from that depression and despair of that summer, my life took a turn to bring me to where I am today. All things are in God's will, whether we like it or not. The shipwrecks of our stupidity or deceit or arrogance, the hurricane that comes on us out of nowhere that is not our fault. The earthquakes that are unfair, without purpose or mercy, those are all part of what make us who we are. Sometimes, like Lisbon, the shipwrecks come as no fault of our own. Sometimes they are in our choices. But he is always with us, regardless. I will be with you even unto the end of the world. Jesus' enemies tried to thwart everything that he did. They tried to trick him. They humiliated him. They imprisoned him unjustly. He never humored or flattered them or tried to escape. The persecution was necessary. That is how he lived. And this is how he continues to live in us. Our heart says, all is lost. He says, all is well. He weeps at Gethsemane. He suffers on the cross. He bleeds. But then, knowing God is present, he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. The more puzzled Isaac was at not finding a lamb, the more Abraham trusted in God. And when Abraham raised his knife, I would like to think that Isaac said to himself, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Job suffered the loss of everything, a natural disaster of momentous proportion. Yet by the end of the book, he says, I'm convinced, God, all things are in your hands. Our fear of desolation is a verse of hymns in the darkness to our God. No matter what the shipwreck, we need to believe that he is with us. In the condition of shipwreck or suffering, we're afraid of running into rocks because we are in the darkness. But we should have no fear, knowing this is the path that God has us on. 
Which way we should go really doesn't matter. Because we cannot get lost. There is no road. There is only holding on to his hand. And this reminds me of a passage from a journal uh, called Blue Highways. And William Least Heatmoon, the uh, author of the book, is traveling in his van across the country on the blue highways, on the map of the little roads that are um, colored in blue. And he's in this little Kentucky town, and he's leaving. So he says, when it it came time to go, Watts, the owner of the little place where he was staying, said, um, well, if you find anyone out there who needs a good store, tell him about us. I said I would. And Miss Jenny and Miss Hilda and Marilyn came out to say goodbye. It was drizzling rain. And Miss Hilda said, Hmm, weather gives a man the weary dismals. I hope you don't get yourself kilt in that darn thing gallivanting around the country. And Watts said, Well, where are you headed from here, son? I thought to myself and I said, I don't really know. He said, well, that's good then, because you can't get lost then, can you? (laughs) We can't get lost from God. In the dark nights, on the blue highways, in the loneliness, in the suffering and desolation, in the shipwrecks, we might think God has gone somewhere. We might think we are lost, or He is lost. But he isn't. If we hang on to the plank and paddle like crazy, we will come to shore. Our lives are in his hands. Uh, Albert Einstein, a young college student, remembered his first university class. Um, And he recorded that in a book called God and Science. He said the professor looked at him and looked at the roll book, and then pointed a bony finger at him and said, Tell me, Mr. Einstein, who created evil? If God created everything, then God must have created evil. Sickness, hatred, ugliness, catastrophe. If God created everything, then God created all of those things and evil. Well, sir said the young Einstein. Are we talking scientific demonstrative protocol? Yes, the professor said. Well, sir, let me ask you a question, if I might. Do you believe in heat and cold? Yes. Well, actually, sir, there is no such thing as cold. You can have lots of heat. You can have more heat, mega heat, unlimited heat, white heat. But there is no such thing as cold. We can go down to 458 degrees below zero, which is no heat, but we can't go any further than that. There is no such thing as cold, the opposite of heat. Cold is only a word we use to describe the absence of heat. Same with darkness. Darkness is not something, it is the absence of light. Otherwise, we could make darkness darker. And by your scientific protocol, death would be the absence of life, but death is not the opposite of life. It is the absence of life. And so, too, evil does not exist unto itself as the opposite of good. Evil is the absence of God. Evil is the result of what happens 
when man does not have God's love present in his heart. It is like the cold that comes when there is no heat or darkness when there is no light. The professor replied, Hmm, well, this will be an interesting semester. And Albert said, well, I hope so. Even though the leaders of the Enlightenment connected evil with God, the abandonment of God in the Lisbon earthquakes, there was no such thing. Events happen. We lose loved ones. We suffer losses. We get sick or incapacitated. We get old. It is life. It is not evil. Nor is God evil. Auschwitz was the product of men who had become evil, men living with the absence of God. But God was there even as he was in Gethsemane or Calvary, and even as he was in my young life and as he is in our lives today. He is here in shipwrecks. Winter comes on us. Trees shed their leaves. They look desolate and stripped. The pale light of winter focuses the irregularities and imperfections hidden in them. So too we are exposed by our own winters. And the defects of our character are exposed. Our stupidity or arrogance or deceit or pride. But during the whole of winter, the tree strengthens itself. It contracts its exterior and concentrates its strength into the roots so that new roots push out the old ones, strengthened, are nourished, and thrust further into the soil. It is during the winter that the source of life is more firmly established. And so, too, it is in our winters. Our soul makes progress. The sap is not spent on leaves, it's spent on strength. And our shipwrecks make us who we are. Isaac, Jonah, Job, Jesus, they all spent time in winter. And if we follow a human path, we may not find God. But if we lay down on the rock, willing to be sacrificed, or if we cling to a plank in the midst of our shipwrecks, then we will not be lost, and God will find us. If we care nothing for what is beneath us or above us or beside us, if we think not about comfort or pleasure or profit or spirituality or saintliness or rewards of heaven, if we take God evenly as he comes to us, joy and sadness, suffering and rescue one thing like another, then we will not be lost. I'm reading a book by a Buddhist monk, and I can't pronounce his name, but the book is entitled, You Are Here. So as Westerners, we are all about yesterday, and we drag this big bag behind us with all our excuses and all the things that happened to us, and that's why I am like I am. Or we are about tomorrow, and all the hopes and desires and things that will change tomorrow when it comes. Um, but in the Eastern religions, they're all about today, living in the moment. Um, I personally have had difficulty with this. I live in 
yesterday or tomorrow. Uh, so I've been working at this, this with this. And he talks about purposeful living, purposeful breathing, even. I mean, just, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this that's crazy. But I've been practicing as I walk in the mornings. I've been practicing purposeful breathing. Okay, so we're all going to do this now. It's a little exercise. So I want you to breathe in and breathe out and think about your breath. I am breathing. I am breathing. Right? And so then now I want you to breathe in. And when you breathe out, I want you to smile. You look stupid. Okay? If you, if you do that into a mirror, you look like an idiot. Just, and, but I'm, so I'm walking in the park going... And I don't do it when I'm approaching people because I look like an axe murderer or something. But I just do it on my own. And it's made me more aware of, instead of looking at the sidewalk and thinking about, ooh, what happened yesterday or what am I going to teach the kids today? I have no lesson plans or, you know, whatever. I'm starting to look at the park and just be there and watch the birds and things like that. So it's, which is really good, except now I'm getting to the point where I'm becoming really intent on the moment, and the moment is affecting me. Okay? So I'm out the other day, and I'm approaching this Chinese woman. She's on a cell phone, and she's got this dog. And um, so she got off the cell phone, and she started yelling commands at her dog in Chinese. And he ran out and picked up the ball. And he ran back at her command, and he released the ball at her command, and she kept shouting these things at him, and he would bark back at her, and they had this conversation going. And I thought to myself, you are an idiot. This dog speaks Chinese. I speak no languages. The only thing in Chinese I know is jin da ti no la hi which is, where's the bathroom? <laughs> Besides that, he was a German shepherd. So he was probably trilingual. <laughs> I was totally bummed out. I felt totally inept, totally stupid. I hurried home to listen to some Scott Tonkinson-type country music about trucks and mama and rain and dogs and Mama walking her dog in the rain and getting run over by a truck. <laughs> Comfort music. <laughs> it's foolish to think that we can avoid being shipwrecked. The essayist Annie Dillard says, Living is like prospecting in the dark. Often we are caught in collisions of molecules in a crumbling earth, and it is then that we must decide whether life is all coincidence and circumstance, or it is not. We do not know where we're going in life. We don't know what tomorrow will bring us. All we can do is abandon ourselves to this moment in God. Learning to live in the moment, to live in these circumstances, day by day, I think is essential to learning to survive our shipwrecks. Jesus, in the darkest of nights, 
let the violence break over him. Unshaken, he continued on his path. He concentrated on what he had to do, and he left the rest to God. He groaned under the weight, he staggered, but he did not fall. He knew all would be well if he continued to live in the moment that God had given him. He lived in the moment. Jesus is in Gethsemane praying. Stay here and keep vigil with me. This sorrow is crushing the life out of me. Sweat wrung from him like drops of blood. It poured off his face. My father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But please, not what I want. What do you want? In suffering, we have nothing to help us beyond what he gives us for the moment. Nothing else is provided. The path is unmarked. We are like a child waiting in the dark for the flashlight. We don't know when help would arrive. A shipwreck is no value of its own, but it is valuable to God and it is valuable to us because it acts to make us better than what we are. Death is no meaning to us except the resurrection has made death meaningful. When we suffer our shipwrecks, we suffer alone, but we are only alone as alone as we want to be. He is out there. He is with us. After the resurrection, even though he had a perfected body, Jesus kept the scars as a reminder of human suffering, loneliness, desolation, abandonment. He has been through this himself. He knows us. He is ever-present at all moments of our lives. And if we learn to live in the moments that he gives us, then we will live in the moments that make us weak and inadequate, but we will live in the moments that draw us closer to him. And the truth that these moments are the tools that God uses to transform us into what he wants us to be. In our suffering, we will find the face of God. In our shipwrecks, we will discover the path that he has us on. In our loneliness and in our desperation and in our losses, we need to remember that he is with us always, even to the ends of the world. We are not abandoned. It hurts to lose things. It hurts to suffer. It hurts to, to go through sickness or loss of a job or death of a loved one. It feels like we are alone. But we are not. And we are only as alone as we want to be because he is there in the suffering. And he is there. If we will grab onto him and paddle to shore, he will rescue us. Father, we 
We are all shipwrecked in some way or another today. We name these things to you. We ask that you would show yourself to us. That you will comfort us. That you will make yourself known. Father, take us by the hand. Show us the flashlight of the path that you want us to walk. Help us to depend on you, on your presence. To believe in the promise that you will be with us even to the end. Bless us today, Lord, in your presence. Amen.